The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Aarons Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. I'm just old enough to marvel how accomplished so many young people today are. The forethought, the effort, the drive. They do everything you're supposed to do to accomplish your goals in life. Millennials now are the most educated cohort in American history. And for many young people, it's the season to start thinking about their future. But that future looks very different for those just graduating from college or just setting out on a new job, buying a house, starting a family than it did just a few months ago. We reached out to listeners to get a sense of what they're feeling right now as the uncertainty swells and how they think about how this year might impact them for years ahead in their careers, their financial stability, ability to get married, buy a house, start that family, and in their dreams. First, I spoke to Daria Ford, a young woman just graduating from Barnard College in New York with a computer science degree. Daria grew up without a lot of money in New York City, got a scholarship to Miss Porter's for high school, completed the Girls Who Code program on the path to a career in STEM. In short, she did everything right. But she doesn't know what the future holds. I always knew that I wanted to go to college because I saw education as a gateway to just better myself and achieve whatever the American dream is or what I thought it was when I was younger. So I went away to boarding school when I was in high school and I was able to get that opportunity through a program called the Oliver Scholars Program, which helps minorities get into private school. I made sure that I did the best that I could and also just tried to be the best, especially as a black woman. I just I couldn't really afford to be what I thought was average academically. And I think when I got to Barnard, it shifted away from being not mediocre academically and more so making sure that I wasn't mediocre professionally. And I knew that STEM equaled money in terms of my mental health. It was definitely a roller coaster. Um, trying to keep up with my classes while flying out to California for tech interviews. So this past summer, I interned at Groupon as a product manager intern. And when I got back on campus, I found out that I had received a return offer to come back after graduation. There definitely was a moment during this time where I saw that a lot of the people at my company were being furloughed or laid off. And then I went on a Slack channel that was created for new grads who were entering at Groupon. And I saw that our recruiter wrote to us saying that 
they couldn't guarantee our employment. However, they are very hopeful and they'll keep us posted within the next 30 to 60 days. And I was like, oh my gosh, 30 to 60 days, that's one to two months. From there, I really kicked back into recruitment mode and that was definitely just a traumatic experience in itself, just the possibility of not having financial security and stability after graduation. I'm no longer in the limbo. As of two weeks ago, they sent out another message saying that our offers are secured and they're just pushing our start dates to October. And my offers should be secure. However, in the back of my mind, I just know how we're really not in control of anything. We might get to September and there's a second wave of COVID and there are more people who are being furloughed and laid off. The anxiety also comes from me really wanting to hit the ground running and feeling like I've hit the ground running in every environment that I have been in, whether it's going to a boarding school or going to a top college or having great internship experiences and not having the opportunity to do that right after graduation like I was expecting to have the opportunity to do. Now, those graduating in 2020 are no doubt facing monumental hurdles as they enter adulthood. But another cohort, millennials, are now facing the second major economic hit in their adult lives. Many in this group, like the next voice you'll hear, were graduating or just starting out in their careers when the Great Recession hit. Now, many had recovered, had a new life plan, got married, bought homes, were moving up into management. And they were dreaming big, but are now feeling the anxiety of another huge economic shock. Cody Hoyt graduated from high school in 2003 and spent five years as a Marine before working in the oil and gas industry, then going back, finishing his undergrad degree and getting an MBA. Now Cody works at a large public company, but he's also uncertain about how the ground will shift. He sits with his anxiety about the future and whether the big goals he set for himself will ever be in his grasp, given the economy. You know, for, for the longest time, I, I had this idea that I wanted to be this, this very successful person. And to me, it seemed like successful people were in business. I grew up in a, in a small town in, in Pennsylvania, middle child. And so while by a, a lot of accounts, we had a great childhood, one of the, the really serious things that we dealt with is our mother passed away when I was was 14. And once she passed away, my, my father was was the caretaker of our family. And he sort of created a culture in our home that I would consider obnoxiously masculine. And so when it came time to think about post high school, I'd been kind of exposed to the military in a lot of ways. It was something that I was really interested in doing, but it was also this culture that I was raised in after my mother passed away sort of pushed me in that direction. After that, I, I chose to, to leave the military and go into the oil and gas business. And at the time, oiling, the oil price of a barrel of oil is, is through the roof. It was $140 that summer, which was, if not the historic highs, it was, it was in that ballpark. Shortly after I joined, that $140 a barrel price of oil quickly dropped down to, I think, in the you know, $50 range early that next year or so all the riches I thought I was going to be making in the oil industry quickly evaporated within the first few months I was in the business. And for me, it was this idea that, oh, Jesus, this is the first 
major failure I've had in my life. I, I left oil, the oil business to go back to school to finish my undergrad degree. And so I, I just hoped against hope that after I finished my undergrad and then my, my MBA, uh, if I was fortunate enough to have, you know, that all work out the way that I wanted to, that the economy would be in a drastically different place and, and I'd have a chance to sort of hit the reset button a little bit on my career. And when I look at it now, why I think that it is, it was the right decision is what it's given me is it's given me an opportunity to, to get myself to a position where I have a steady income, have a, have a really, really decent job. Now I have the opportunity to look and say, okay, what else is out there? What else do I want to do? And I have this really solid footing when, when people see an MBA, they see something that's successful, somebody that's successful. And so, so some of those doors that maybe close otherwise because they have those three letters there. People tend to, to recognize that and, and are open to maybe discussions that they wouldn't have been otherwise. I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to sit down with a, with a professional coach through, through my employer. And he asked me, so tell me what you want to be. And I said, I want to be a CEO of a publicly traded company. And he said, great, tell me why. And I said, to prove that I have fulfilled my potential. And then he said a question I will never forget as long as I live. He said, prove to whom? And until that moment, I had never even thought about what is this idea of success? Why am I chasing so hard? And I had this idea of success, right? And that has totally shifted the landscape of how I view what I think I want my life to be and what I want to do with my career. Right now, everything's stable, secure. I feel like the work I'm doing is important and meaningful with my employer. but you know, that can, that can change in a, heart, in a heartbeat and they could decide that you know, we need to cut our, our staff by half because things aren't looking good. But then there's the anxiety around, you know, as I'm sort of figuring out and thinking through what it is that, that my future career looks like, it seems like there are fewer options on the table. And then I think the, the third sort of way I'm feeling some anxiety is, you know, just, just on the home front, my, my wife and I were new, relatively newly married. We're buying a house. We're talking about having children in the near future and, and how does everything that's happening in the world affect that from the, the pandemic that's still in, in full effect in the world to the economic situation that we're facing. Now, I'm a Gen Xer. My generation is known for apathy and trying to figure out our path in life between two huge generations, baby boomers who are older than us and millennials who are younger U.S. GDP, when Gen Xers were in their 20s and 30s, grew at twice the level it did for millennials at the same age. Privileged people in Gen X caught the last wave of the days when most white-collar jobs offered health insurance and retirement funds. I also believe, because there was no social media, no university pitch competitions, no obsession with entrepreneurship or creating the next big startup, no LinkedIn or TED Talks, we had less pressure to be awesome <laughs> when we were starting out. The combination of less economic pressure and less social pressure meant we had more room to find our ways into our careers. That's just not true anymore. And the stories we've just heard are, of course, two individuals at different stages of life in different parts of the country. Many more people their age are suffering as well, many having lost jobs or failed to get one out of college. So we also wanted to explore the collective impact of an event like this on a generation. We turn now to Annie Lowry, staff writer at The Atlantic. She recently wrote the piece, Millennials are the New Lost Generation. 
and I spoke with her about the economic, psychological, and social impacts a major economic crisis can have. Annie, I'd love it if you just give a rundown for listeners what kind of long-term impacts the last recession, the Great Recession of 2008 onward, had on different generations, but especially millennials? Yeah. So recessions, as a general point, don't hit all cohorts in the same way. Uh, they're they're bad for everybody, but there are some ways in which they are particularly bad for young people, and we saw that borne out uh, with millennials and the Great Recession, and we are likely seeing it being borne out with Gen Zers and the pandemic recession that we're in right now. Millennials graduated into the worst labor market since the 1930s. And so they took large initial job losses. Their unemployment rates were very high, even compared to the overall unemployment rate, which peaked at about 10%. But for millennials was, depending on where you were um, and your education level, was, was in some cases more like 30%. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, bad. So um, – large initial job losses, earnings losses, and and then those scars took a long time to fade. Actually, millennials are still carrying them. Um, economic research indicates that graduating into a recession leads to these kind of big earning losses at the beginning. And even two decades later, uh, you still have earnings losses. Um, and so the economic term for this is is hysteresis. And, and it's sometimes described as labor market scarring. So basically graduating into a recession leaves a scar. It takes a very long time to fade. And in some cases, doesn't really fade for your whole lifetime. It, it's sort of a permanent effect. And so then there's kind of all these sort of second order knock-on effects that happened because of just, you know, the bad timing that the millennials ended up with. So one is, is that they were really unable to buy homes mm-hmm. or bought homes a lot later than Gen Zers or baby boomers did. So even right now, millennials, uh, their rate of home ownership is like eight percentage points lower than compared to prior generations. So that's, that's a huge loss. Um, they struggled to accumulate wealth in part because they took on so much student loan debt, uh, more than half a billion dollars for just the millennials themselves. And in part because they had these kind of sluggish earnings trajectories, um, you know, they were slower to to move out into single family homes. They had fewer kids. They started fewer businesses because they didn't have the financial capacity to. Mm. So um, millennials got got dealt a pretty, pretty crummy hand. Um, and we're really worried. I'm really worried that, that that's kind of happening to Gen Z, too. What do you think just sort of extrapolating will be the effect of having back-to-back generations. So you've got the millennials who now have hit a double whammy, and then Gen Z who are graduating into a huge economic mess. What will be the effect of having back-to-back generations that have just been clobbered? 
it's not good. And you've seen, so we, you know, I know you guys have talked about, and we as a society have talked a lot about income inequality and wealth inequality mm. becoming unbelievably predominant features of American economic life. And, and the truth is that, that that wealth inequality and income inequality um, manifests itself in terms of a kind of age inequality also. So baby boomers experienced really different financial conditions than younger people did. They had a really big leg up. Uh, they were in their peak earning years during times when, you know, even with recessions, uh, sort of the tide was lifting all boats. And, and younger folks, you know, they haven't benefited in that, that same way. And, and I think that that is, is going to have a lot of effects just in, in terms of our understanding of who the American economy works for and who it doesn't. Um, one sort of interesting strand to draw out of this is that uh, having a recession happen to fall during your formative years, which happened for both millennials and Gen Zers, it tends to decrease your um, confidence in public institutions like Congress, but it actually tends to increase your social solidarity. So your support for redistributive government programs like Social Security, like food stamps. And so I think that that's actually a really important part of the kind of leftward drift mm. that we've seen among young people that they're like, man, we need a social solution, a societal solution to these problems because the economy isn't working for us and, and we're making up this giant precariat despite having really done everything right, done everything well, that we were told to do. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, I it's interesting because, of course, the, the stereotype is that millennials and then Gen Z are so entitled. They feel all their feelings and everyone just constantly hovers all over them. But... My sense as a Gen Xer is that um, certainly the the two younger people we'll hear from today on the show, Cody and Daria, they could not have done more to make themselves seem perfect on paper. The drive, the checking the boxes of ambition that I see among um, millennials and Gen Z who are professionally driven blows me away as a sort of, you know, lackadaisical Gen Xer who just drifted and found her way into success because it was easy. Um, that's got to create like a very emotional, an emotional disconnect for these people who have done everything right, and yet are totally screwed by the system and, you know, the American dream of, of raising up a rung in the ladder. Absolutely. I find it frankly offensive <laughs> when you see these arguments <laughs> about how this is, you know, millennials entitled attitude and they're avocado toast and they expect too much in the workplace, yada, yada, yada. Individual level um, explanations, right? Like, explanations for what has happened to this cohort that rest on some sort of intrinsic emotional factors within the cohort are, <laughs> are just ridiculous. Right. Millennials didn't get anything handed to them and, and they did everything kind of right. Right. Uh, they were told, you know, the, the path to the middle class to security 
is is through education. And so they're the most educated cohort in American history. And what do they get for that? They get a lot of student loans yeah. and and they get suppressed wages and the inability to accumulate wealth, right? Like this is a cohort that wasn't taking drugs uh like like the like Gen X. I did. <laughs> like yeah, this was a cohort that delayed having children. There's also there's really compelling economic research that shows that uh, in order to make up for initial earnings losses, you have to switch jobs because it's mm. it's actually, you know, big raises don't tend to come from staying in the same job and advancing. They come from moving between companies. And that's another thing that always bothers me in the kind of millennial, right? Like, oh, they're just job hopping. And it's like, well, maybe they're doing that because they need to make more money. <laughs> um, uh, so that's that's another part of it that you know, and, and I suppose that, you know, there's, there's this kind of similar, like, uh, now, like, okay, boomer attitude about, you know, how the boomers ruined everything, which I think is in some ways also overplayed. But yeah, this is, this is not uh, a problem that has to do with choices millennials made, it, it has to do with the structures that they're operating in. What about what about innovation? You know, I, I think about that, too. I think I wonder if the cost of not trusting institutions and financial systems and having so little stability stifles not that's a, that's a negative word you know changes your attitude towards wanting to go out and innovate and take risks and start businesses in favor of seeking safety i mean do we know anything about that we know that the people who get to become entrepreneurs often are people from high income backgrounds because mm. they have that kind of parental safety net. Maybe they have, you know, less student debt. Uh, maybe they just know that the worst thing that can happen is that they have to move home. And, and so, uh, and maybe also, right, like they get loans from their parents and their parents' friends to start their business or, yeah. you know, like the credit card that somebody will co-sign with them. Friends and family. Um, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, that means to me that that actually having more family security, um, a bigger middle class, higher net worths for middle income families would actually really help with with entrepreneurship. We could say societally that we want everybody to have that kind of to fall back on. Um, and there, there are policies that can get us there. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Are there other social or psychological effects you're thinking about that we may see coming out of the Great Recession and, and of course, now the unknown size recession slash depression of the pandemic? 
There are really interesting studies of kids who grew up in the Great Depression. And, you know, again, just recessions are bad. Mm. They're just, they're bad for health. They're bad for income. They're just bad, 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 bad for everybody. And, and that's why it's such an urgent public policy concern to make sure that they're as short and as mild as possible. And, but, but, in insofar as there are kind of interesting silver linings that come out of them, I think that social solidarity is one of them. There's interesting studies of kids who grew up in the Depression that show that in some cases it inculcated a lot of grit. Uh, I've always been interested in that. To, to what extent some people come out with sort of this additional resilience but it's hard, right? Um, we know that that recessions even have intergenerational effects. So the children of kids who experienced a recession in their formative years have, have lower earnings than people who missed that recession just slightly, which is, I always find that kind of crazy. Wow. Um, and it just makes it so urgent to try to fix these things and to try to make sure that the safety net is working for people. I want to ask you specifically about the emotional and psychological impact of debt, because I yes. think that is something that is, I know personally, it, it, it induces a kind of anxiety that lack of forward opportunity just doesn't because debt literally hangs over you. It follows you. You can't escape it. It can feel insurmountable. Um. What role is is the burden of debt going to play both psychologically and financially on on people sort of under 40 today? We are running this grand experiment <laughs> on the psychology of debt and young people. So again, you know, the message was go go to school and uh, it's going to lead to these income, and wealth accumulation benefits, it's all going to work out for you. And, and so young people, um, you know, starting in the 80s and 90s, right, like they just started taking on more debt to go to school, their families took on more debt. And um, the financial part of it, in a lot of cases, didn't actually work out that well. <laughs> it is true that there's a huge earnings premium associated with going to college, um, but it's now gotten so expensive. Um, and in some cases, earnings trajectories have been crummy enough that the benefit isn't that big. And if you look for young black folks, there used to be a huge wealth benefit in terms of going to college. And, and now there's almost none, mm. right? It's so expensive to go and accumulating wealth as a younger person has become so challenging and so difficult you know, you spend $25,000, $30,000 uh, going to school and, you know, um, the, the math doesn't always work out very well. And in terms of the psychology, I think that we in some ways sort of underrated the emotional effects of having this additional bill to pay mm. for like decades on end and how fraught that makes your financial decision making. So like, even if if a personal finance expert could look and say, hey, the math worked out for you, this is this is better, that that psychology, like that psychology of man, um, you know, I, I need to pay my rent, and it's really costly. And I got to 
pay my kids childcare and it's really costly. And also I'm still paying 400 or $600 a month on my student loans. It's you look at surveys and it's just so burdensome for people. And, and I feel like that's actually a really underrated part of this. The fact that, that, you know, from, from the outset of, of your adult life, you're just kind of saddled with this, you know, you feel like you're just constantly spooning water out of the boat. <laughs> well, I, I think that's right. And, and, you know, humans being humans, we always I think intrinsically think the future will be better. And so, you know, we're, we, we have a sense, thank God, that opportunity might just be around the corner so that, like you said, even if you're paying a ton of money for childcare now, you can see it as an investment in future growth. But debt closes off the part of your brain in a way that allows you to feel creative and free and innovative and look ahead to what's big. It, it, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's literally, I think it almost creates a trauma because when you think about an adventure, find, you know, in your career, you're triggered by that feeling of, oh my gosh, but I owe and I have to make that every month. Absolutely. And it really weighs on you. Mm-hmm psychologically, I I would be really interested to know how it reduces people's risk taking, mm. right? Like, maybe I'm not going to go start that podcast or begin a business or, you know, quit my job and um, do this thing that I've always wanted to do educationally, or in, in business or whatever it might be. Um, because you know that that bill is just endlessly due. I wanted to ask a question going back to the value of college. If you see um, a sort of inflation in the need to have credentials in order to make it up. I, I'm thinking of a study that was done last year by Forte Foundation, which looked at the value of an MBA, right? So, you mm. know, I was always raised that if you had an MBA, you were golden, right? It was an investment, mm-hmm. it was expensive, but like, wow. But um, what they found is that um, the future earnings potential of MBAs has shrunk. It's, of course, surprise, surprise, biggest for white men, Mm. It's significant for African-Americans of both genders. Mm. It's actually sort of net, net neutral for women, (laughs) white women, especially (laughs) because uh, I think of of dropping out of the workforce. But it it does strike me that that gap is narrowing. The value is less. We, We know that the value of getting a law degree or a medical degree is less because of debt, because earnings like, but again, I think that, you know, 20 years ago, my mother would always say this, when I grew up, a BA was all you needed. And now you need a doctorate to be a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. What's that inflation going to cost us in terms of credentialing? This kind of credentialism has all sorts of terrible downsides. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I think, you know, still getting an advanced degree, at least on paper, for most people, right? So an average really, really helps. And we have seen like stratification in terms of income um, on the basis of education uh, because we've seen the erosion, the loss of, of these kinds of jobs. Um, there are just fewer of them, particularly in like manufacturing, that kind mm-hmm. of thing where you don't need a college degree, but it's a, a stable middle-class job. We, we especially see the kind of bad effects of this sort of credentialism when you have a recession and a really bad labor market, employers, basically, they have too many people to pick from for, you know, individual jobs when they're hiring. And so they do this kind of inflation where they say, oh, for this job, we've decided now that you you need a master's, not just 
a BA or you need a BA, not just a GED. And, and in that way, they're, they're kind of winnowing their pool down. And, and this is a really harmful, hurtful thing in, in the economy. And, and you can see it in, in lots of ways. Um, and again, this is kind of one reason that it's, it's just so important um, for, for the country to sort of get to full employment and stay there, um, because it takes a long time for income gains to reach uh, folks who are lower down the income ladder. This is something we saw after the last recession, and it's going to be really important going forward. I want to talk about the media for a second. You're you're a member of the media. Um, what do you what do you think the media is doing right about covering the generational financial crises now? And what could they do in order to help craft a public narrative that is helpful both for job seekers and employers? Like, what is the role of media in all this? It's such a great question. And it's coming, you know, during this time that for all that we've seen kind of this wonderful explosion and this creation of, of media where the barrier to entry is, is really low. So like RIP blogs, but it's been so great <laughs> to see like podcasting explode as a phenomenon. And net net, I think, you know, Twitter has been terrible for humanity, but I do actually think in some ways it's been good for <laughs> news consumption, maybe. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, we're in this crisis of just the number of news outlets collapsing and the number of reporters, um, you know, the Atlantic itself went through really painful layoffs last week. Um, there's a structural crisis. That said, I, I'm totally with you that that narrativization is such a dangerous thing. Mm. So if we were talking like 10 years ago, uh, this this narrative that the millennials were like lazy basement dwellers was becoming really predominant. Or, or really obsessed hurtful. with starting apps that had little societal value. <sighs> and yet, right, that was another narrative. Yeah, another narrative that slightly drives me crazy and, and where I do think that the media constantly gets it wrong is that there's this this kind of, um, how do you put it? There's this real fetishization of garage tech startups when really most entrepreneurship and small business creation in the United States, it's, it's not like primarily tech and apps and stuff, nope. right? It's people setting up small law offices or starting nail salons. It's, it's much less sexy and exciting, but it's still really important. Um, and I, I think we kind of constantly flub that one. And I think that you're right that there's just this like total fetishization of especially Silicon Valley and everything's getting disrupted and everything's changing. And this inability to see tech for like what it was, which was just another industry acting in its own self-interest and like <laughs> selling this narrative about itself. Dominated um, by white men who kept money yeah, among white men. Yeah, totally. And that they're all like monopolists, mm -hmm. right? Who now like do a lot of like lobbying in Washington. And I always felt like if you just treated, like if you replace tech with oil and gas, would you get the same like gasping media coverage 
about all these geniuses who are disrupting and changing the whole world. And so, yeah, I'm with you that like that kind of clear headedness. And I get that, you know, there's all this like social psychology about people want new things and they want heroes and, you know, media is like creating these. Anyway, um, I, 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 it's, I wish I were clear eyed enough to know what we were just totally messing the story up on now. <laughs> I try, but I'm not sure. Well, I, I think most journalists are just trying to keep their jobs. You know, my, my, hus- yeah, my husband totally. always cites the statistic that, you know, the steel industry has actually kept many more jobs. Journalists have lost about five times more jobs as the steel industry over the past 20 years, but we never talk about that. You know, it's funny though. Cody, who who is part of this this episode, mm-hmm. I heard in his voice a real almost grief because he's in corporate America, and I think he 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 is so of the entrepreneurship porn generation that mm. he feels like he's missing a benchmark in a way by not blazing that trail of glory. Mm. Yeah, I think that 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 sense of loss Mm -hmm. is really palpable. And also the the way in which it's just become really hard to do, right? Like we are seeing this declining entrepreneurship rate across the whole of the economy. Again, this this is a structural thing, and I don't think we even entirely understand it. But but it's f- so amazing to see that reflected in an individual who who has this yearning right to do it and, and who did everything right exactly served in the like, military got an thing? MBA like it's it's just I think that I think that saying it's structural is the key it's not individual X's fault it's not your fault that you're not. Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like there are mm-hmm. structural forces, right? That I hear you saying that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and um, and I imagine that it's you know I never went to business school myself, right? But I, I imagine that 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 pressure to do it yourself is is really prevalent in business school, where oh, at beyond. Least for, you know, like folks who I know who have gone or who teach at them, right? There's all this emphasis on the new um, and the transformative. And as you point out, not on the, you know, creating from within or realizing that this has gotten a lot harder and that there's there's uh, deep financial reasons, both at the household level and in terms of corporate financing, why that's true. Well, Annie Lowry, I want to thank you so much for your work and for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. And before we go, I wanted to leave you all with a few last thoughts from the voices you heard at the top of the show, Cody and Daria. Because even with this anxiety and the unknown future, these generations still have a lot of hope. In the middle or end of March, I would tell you that I feel completely insecure. And that's because one of the things that I didn't have under my belt was a college degree. But I think now that I graduated on Monday, I feel secure. In terms of what I'm doing before I start at Groupon in October, I'm going to be an instructor at Girls Who Code for their summer immersion program. And that's definitely something that I'm looking forward to. For me to be anxious about something and say, I don't know what I want to do with the next 10, 15 years of my career. or I don't know what my career might look like or what my goals are. I don't want people to see that because that starts to peel away some of that, you know, the idea of, oh, this person is successful or this person's really has a really, you know, is a strong leader or whatever. And so 
as as I get a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser as time goes, I've learned that being vulnerable is, is okay. It's taking a lot, of, a lot of pressure off my shoulders, just realizing that we all kind of deal with the same sorts of anxieties in the world. That's it for this week's show. If you like The Anxious Achiever, please be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, you can drop us a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com, send me a tweet at Mora AM, or drop me a message on LinkedIn. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, and this week to Amanda Kersey, Thanks to my amazing producer, Mary Dew, Anne Saney, Colin Howarth, Adam Buckholtz, and the team at HBR. And our music, if you like it, is from Signal Sounds NYC. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever.